those companies also knew, and we know this from their internal documents, that to avoid severe global warming, they needed to act then. They needed to start replacing fossil fuels then. When governments tried to do that, those fossil fuel companies banded together and came up with a playbook to stop that from happening. We could see trials in this climate litigation. We could also see the biggest settlement in legal history, potentially, um, because the damages are so enormous. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter, and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Benjamin Franta. Ben is the founder of the Climate Litigation Lab at the University of Oxford, where they do research which is used to inform climate litigation around the world. Climate litigation involves lawsuits against companies, institutions, individuals who have aided and abetted public deception, the suppression of information, and to put the whole world in danger by driving the climate crisis. Who are the number one culprits? Big oil. Ben and his team do evidentiary and strategy research, and their aim is to produce practically impactful work. In the episode, Ben walks us through the history of how big oil deliberately suppressed information about their impacts on the climate, how they deceived the public, how they twisted the arms of the powerful in order to stop governmental action in the 90s. He walks us through the lawsuits that are happening around the world, what we can learn from them, how they themselves have learned from the cases against the tobacco industry. He explains the defence that the fossil fuel industry is already using in these lawsuits. And finally, we talk about how this industry deliberately put the entire world in danger due to the marriage of corporate interests and political interests. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Ben, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Could you give a whistle-stop tour of your career and your many PhDs (laughs) (laughs) before launching into the climate litigation lab? Okay, so I've been working on climate change for like over 10 years, but in many different ways. Um, Originally, I was a physicist um, and I did a PhD in applied physics, um, worked on solar energy research, um, developing new solar cells. And when I was doing that, I, um, I started to feel like I wasn't having the impact on climate change that I wanted to have. Um, so I started. And can we? Hmm. I, sorry, Ben. Can we just pause there for a second? Hmm. Um, because I think a lot of people would ask the question: Why, if you're working on solar cells, i.e., you know, sort of renewable energy, why did you not feel that you were having the impact on climate change? Because people say that that is the solution, sort of, climate change. I know that's so right. So I, you know, as a physicist, I think I assumed that the problem was primarily a technological problem. Um, and that that was the main bottleneck. Um, but as I learned more about the issue, I started to learn more about the political dimensions to the problem um, and the social dimensions. And I started to see those as as the big impediment, the main bottleneck. Now, of course, technology will continue to improve, and that's a very important part of the problem and the solution. Um, but actually actually getting that technology developed and implemented and deployed, that is a social problem. That's a political problem. Um, and so I started to see that as as a huge impediment. And I, I was searching for something to do 
in that realm and um, started getting involved in climate change activism. Uh, this was around 10 years ago, and the fossil fuel divestment movement was just starting. Uh, and it's it's interesting to look back because when that movement started, it, it really was seen as a radical thing to say that we shouldn't invest in fossil fuels. Now it's it's almost um, obvious. It's sort of a it's sort of a no brainer. It's like if you want to change the energy system, then it makes sense that that you have to change your investments as well on a global scale. But at that time, there was there was sort of this lack of attention being placed on the fossil fuel industry as the um, as as the origin or the the main focus of the problem. And you know, this was at I was at Harvard University at the time, and my you know fellow organizers and I we ran into huge opposition not just from the fossil fuel industry, but from Harvard University as well. Um, you know, Harvard didn't want to stop investing in fossil fuels. Um, one of its trustees is ExxonMobil's uh, main defense lawyer, <laughs> um, oh, right. you know, and there is sort of this attitude of, I think part of it is sort of this attitude of, the people who run Harvard University kind of saw themselves, I think, this is just my perspective, as, you know, corporate board members of their own corporation, Harvard University. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really want to point mm -hmm. fingers at, you know, a fellow traveler in sort of the, the capitalist system, um, if you will. So mm -hmm. I think there was a cultural impediment. You know, also Harvard receives a lot of money from oil and gas companies. So there was a reluctance to do anything that might that might antagonize those companies. So that activist experience was hugely educational. And I sort of fell into it accidentally. Um, just went to a meeting one night, didn't know what else to do, didn't have any other plans. And, you know, before you knew it, this this movement was exploding all over the world and there were you know many 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 eventually hundreds you know of campaigns across the country and then across the world so it was very exciting and and i think that's when i started to feel like i was actually uh making a difference to climate um pushing the needle you know alongside lots of other people and together we were changing the conversation we were actually getting people to to focus on on the the core of the problem which is fossil fuels and getting people to change um and kind of <laughs> coming up against those entrenched power structures that that actually are the reason why we haven't made more progress on climate change mm -hmm. despite having really good science about it since, you know, the 1970s even, you know, for a very long mm -hmm. time. So it was that experience of, of fighting those entrenched power structures that taught me, um, you know, this is, this is a huge part of the problem. And this is where, you know, I decided to focus my energies uh, to, to make a difference. So you chose to go down the law route. What was it about legal institutions that made you think, right, okay, this is how we're going to best attack those power structures? Because it begs the interesting question, you know, which comes up a lot on this show. Um, how do you tear down the master's house with the master's tool? Is it possible? <laughs> I love that phrase. Um, you know, the law is very powerful, you know, but of course it is part of that establishment structure. At the same time, the law is contested. You know, there are so many different kinds of lawyers and so many kinds of people who are involved with it, you know, basically fighting to shape the law in in the way they think is is best. And, you know, I, I came to to the law in sort of a an accidental way as well. After I 
finish the the physics PhD, I was looking around at what to do and eventually decided to do another PhD in history of science. And I was really inspired by some of my professors um, who were historians of science, people like Naomi Oreskes at Harvard, who's an historian of science. And she she had written about the history of climate change politics and the origins of climate denial. And when I read her book, it opened my eyes because prior to that, I assumed that climate denial was an organic, um, spontaneous phenomenon that just rose up, you know, for kind of um, inexplicable reasons. But she documented how in reality, this was a an orchestrated phenomenon um, that, you a know, propaganda campaign. Absolutely. That, you know, a combination, an alliance between uh, corporate interests and ideological political interests um, came together to, to create climate denial, to invent it and to make it mainstream. And so, you know, again, it, it revealed what the problem was and is. And therefore, you know, in doing that, it suggested what the solutions can be, you know, namely fighting against, you know, the, the groups that are, that are creating that obstruction. Anyway, so I decided to, to do a PhD in history of science, and I decided to investigate what the big oil companies knew about climate change and when they knew it. And to do that, I'd, I'd travel around, I'd go to archives, and I'd search for their internal documents. Um, and, you know, it's like, it's a little like treasure hunting or detective work. Uh, you know, so I'd be looking through documents that, you know, in some cases they hadn't been looked at, you know, since they'd been deposited in that archive, say, 40 or 50 years ago. Mm. Um and every once in a while, you find something really important. So, you know, that work showed that, that the, the oil industry as a whole uh, in the United States and internationally had a very sophisticated level of knowledge about climate change um, from the late 1960s into the 1970s. By the end of the 70s, they had, they had projections of how much global warming was going to occur, you know, in our year, in, in, the, in this year right now and in the future. And those projections were extremely accurate. And crucially, those companies also knew, and we know this from their internal documents, that to avoid severe global warming, they needed to act then. They needed to start replacing fossil fuels then. And I'm talking about, you know, 1980 or so by the 1980s, moving away from fossil fuels. They obviously didn't do that. And instead, when governments tried to do that, those fossil fuel companies banded together and came up with a playbook to stop that from happening. Um, you know, casting doubt on climate science, exaggerating the costs of getting off of fossil fuels, um, proposing solutions that are fake or false solutions, um, you know, like natural gas, or even, and this might sound strange, but promoting things like reforestation, which by itself is good, but the fossil fuel industry identified that as a strategy to basically deflect attention away from the role mm -hmm. of fossil fuels and, and the necessity of replacing them. So mm -hmm. I was studying all of this kind of... Um, kind of uh, political and social strategizing by the fossil fuel industry. And this is around 2016. And a whole new wave of lawsuits began around that time, modeled after tobacco litigation and similar to opioid litigation more recently. And those lawsuits basically said, look, these companies knew about the damage that their products were going to cause and instead of warning the public, like they should have, they concealed their knowledge and then they went ahead and denied it and prevented anyone from solving the problem. And now the damage is actually occurring and someone's got to pay for it. 
And if it's not these mm-hmm. companies, then it's going to be taxpayers and victims. And so it stands to reason that it's fair. And as a matter of law, these companies should um, potentially be liable for that damage. So I saw those lawsuits and I thought that's incredibly interesting. And it's a very powerful way to combine research with with legal action. So then I got interested in the law um, and my advisor at Stanford, where I was then at that time, he uh, is an historian of the tobacco industry and a, and a prolific expert witness in tobacco trials. So, you know, that was incredibly helpful in terms of understanding what did the tobacco industry do? And a lot of these industries use the same playbooks and then using that as a way to jumpstart that investigation of the fossil fuel industry. Amazing. Before we get into that, I have a couple of questions on what you just said. So you said that the fossil fuel companies created this playbook as well to stop governmental action in the in sort of the 80s and 90s. Which governments were on top of it at that moment and were sort of suppressed or had their arms twisted? Well, you know, governments like like the United States, also governments in Europe mm-hmm. were more and more interested in in controlling fossil fuels. International awareness of the problems related to fossil fuels was growing throughout the 1960s, the 1970s, and and the, and the 80s as well. And through the 80s, there was more and more momentum towards an international agreement of some sort in order to, to right. control fossil fuels and avoid severe global warming. And what's amazing is that one of these internal documents from Exxon from the late 1980s, it is a strategy document uh, that describes a presentation given to the board of Exxon at that time. Um, and it's, it says specifically that, look, you know, recently the world has, um, has tried to control chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs. These are the ozone-depleting mm-hmm. chemicals through the Montreal Protocol and things like that. And the whole strategy document was about how to prevent the same thing from happening when it came to fossil fuels and global warming. And so the industry specifically set out to make sure that the successes that environmental, international environmental treaties had, had achieved before would not be replicated when it came to global warming. And what's even more amazing is that strategy, that that master plan, that overall strategy document uh, and idea that was shared with other oil companies all around the world. Um, and so that's why we see this this sort of um, coordinated response from the oil and gas industries um, in the light starting in the late 1980s. And they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying, no, we can't trust climate science. Uh, we have time to do more research. It's not that bad. It's too expensive to get off of fossil fuels and, and, and so on. Um, so they're all saying the same thing. They're all going so, off, off the same strategy book. And was that playbook then to influence public opinion? Because public opinion then votes in uh, representatives. Part of it was to influence public opinion, and part of it was to just water down uh, any sort of international treaty that might come about. It was to block national, uh, you know, and regional legislation and regulation. Um, the The industry became quite sophisticated at targeting certain populations, like influential individuals, like you know, targeting business leaders, um, things like mm. that, and so. In a way, the influence over public policy and the influence over the population's understanding and beliefs, they became combined because these companies realized they could influence, you know, both at the same time that that they are connected as well. So, you know, it was a massive propaganda campaign. Um, And what is amazing to me, because we've seen corporate propaganda campaigns before, of course. Um, and a lot of these strategies like, you know, manipulating economics and 
downplaying the science, you know, those are somewhat familiar. You know, we, we see those from, you know, tobacco industry. We see those from other industries as well. But what's amazing to me, at least, is that these companies knew that what they were doing, that success for them meant a massive and enormous level of damage and destruction for everyone else on earth and and destruction that would be irreversible um mm-hmm. so you know it's sort of a to see that to understand that and then to 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 force that to occur i think is amazing and i think it's you know on a moral level unforgivable um mm-hmm. to to impose that on the world and so you know i think it, it's another reason why legal action is so important because we really should have just accountability for what we know has occurred. And that's a big part of solving this problem going forward as well. Uh, All right. So let's talk about Climate Litigation Lab. So, but before that, I mean, what could we be suing them on? I mean, crimes against humanity? Is that what we could be looking at in the in the near future? Well, we already are actually. Um, recently, there was right. a submission made before the International Criminal Court by a group of young people, uh, international coalition of young people, um, alleging that that the the actions of BP that that oil company. Um, that their historical actions constitute a crime against humanity. You know, I'm, so that's a leading edge argument. Um, it's new, at least in, in that, you know, kind of formal context. Um, but in, in, different, in different countries, in different legal systems, there are different ways to go about seeking accountability. So as I mentioned before, in the United States, um, there are, there are, there's a set of cases that are, um, basically based on corporate deception that are similar to, you know, tobacco, opioids, um, even things like lead paint litigation as well. And they, the basic, you know, story in these cases is that these companies knew, you know, that their, har- their products were harmful. They covered it up. They lied to the public about it. And now the damage is come is is materializing, and they should pay for their fair share of that of that damage. So those are high stakes cases. They're worth you know potentially enormous sums of money, um, and they also have the potential to have a um, an important um, truth exposure function. Uh, the U.S. has a, uh, a powerful legal discovery system where, you know, prior to a trial, the parties discover information from each other, uh, you know, documents, they um, can, you know, perform depositions and so on. And so this is a really important, this is a really important part of the entire process because the public deserves to know how this happened um and and who should be held responsible you know it also in the court of public opinion you know and and this discovery process is why we know so much for instance about the tobacco industry um that's how you know more than 10 million documents were discovered and obtained through legal discovery and tobacco litigation and that's why we know so much about the deceptive activities of that particular industry um so that's another important part of that system. But there are cases occurring all around the world, um, in Europe and elsewhere. There are cases um, against governments and against uh, major fossil fuel companies and kind of fossil fuel-related companies that are asking the court to order the defendants to align their activities, their business plans or their policies with internationally accepted climate goals like the 1.5 degrees Celsius target in the Paris Agreement. Um, so that would, 
practically speaking, entail decarbonizing their businesses or putting those policies in place immediately and in, in a very aggressive way, you know, and in a way that that we know is needed to avoid really severe global warming. So those cases are also really important um, and they're more forward looking. You know, then we have these human rights based cases, cases, the international court cases, uh, the European Court of Human Rights is currently considering whether, um, you know, the member states of, in Europe, for instance, their inadequate action on climate change, does that constitute, you know, a human rights violation? Um, there's a recent case with Torres Strait Islanders and uh, a UN body found that Australia as a, as a government um, is violating those uh, human rights there by its inadequate action. And there are other, uh, there are other international court actions as well. So what we see is a constellation of climate lawsuits, legal action, litigation all around the world. And if we think about what's driving it, it you know, it's the damages, it's the, the evidence of malfeasance, um, you know, and it's the it's the inadequacy of of the other branches of government, you know, of the political branches that have not successfully addressed this problem. And, you know, it's got to be addressed. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this climate litigation going forward. What what cases are likely to be won? Um, and then also, what are the power relations in place that could be harmful to such winning? I'm thinking of the Supreme Court in the United States and how it was stacked by Trump. And mm-hmm. therefore, I'm assuming, to be honest, if a climate litigation case was brought before the people who overturned Roe versus Wade, um, it would likely to be struck off at that level. So can you walk us through the complications of this as well and the likelihoods um, of one case going through and then hopefully setting a precedent Absolutely. and also the potential obstructions. Absolutely. So the future of this litigation is not yet written. Uh, we don't know, you know, what direction it's going to go in and how successful it's going to be. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I try not to speculate um, too much, at least in terms of what might happen. You know, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about the ultimate success of of climate litigation in general. It might be hard to predict a particular case or a particular strategy, but I think if you if we take a step back and look at the bigger picture, we have a massive harm that is occurring year on year and getting worse and worse, and it's it's a recurring harm. It's not something that happens once. It you know, it's recurring. So this is going to be an issue for the foreseeable future, you know, for decades at least. Um, and we have more and more evidence of, of you know, of malfeasance, of, of unlawful and, you know, quite shocking kind of on a moral level activity. And that's not going to be forgotten because it's tied so directly to the damages that that we see. And, you know, at the end of the day, at least when it comes to fossil fuel companies, it's, it's generally not lawful to deceive the public about the product, you know, deceiving the public about the side effects of the product and a side effect of fossil fuels is global warming you know, that's generally unlawful. It's also unlawful, generally speaking, to deceive the public about what a company is doing about the problem. And that's a big issue today. We see uh, advertisements from from lots of companies, fossil fuel producers, but also other, other companies and, you know, the airline industry and so on, um, promoting themselves as, you know, green leaders, and things like that, when if you look at the actual numbers, how much they're investing in green energy, what are they actually doing? It's, it's, yeah. it's arguably very misleading. So, you know, all of that stuff is just kind of s- standard law. Like it's just not 
it's not allowed under a lot of legal systems, regardless of whether it has to do with climate change or not. And so, you know, in some ways, the climate issue is new and unprecedented in terms of the its scale and importance for, you know, a lot of things about living on the planet. Um, but in other ways, it's, it's, you know, it bears on areas of law that have been litigated for a long, long time. So, you know, I think that, that overall there's, there are good chances of success. And to get to your point, you know, which is like, what's going to happen in the United States, you know, there's the Supreme Court and everything. Again, you know, I, I, I want to avoid speculation, but there are different ways that cases can, can resolve. Um, you know, if we look back to tobacco litigation, for example, in the, in the 1990s, um, a bunch of attorneys general across the U.S. sued the tobacco industry under very similar uh, arguments. And, you know, one thing the tobacco industry tried to do first was get immunity through Congress um, and kind of it's sort of as a settlement, but a settlement mm -hmm. that was that would would have been brokered by the Congress. And it would basically say, you know, the industry would pay this much money and in return, you know, we'd pass new legislation that would immunize the industry from you know, uh, legal liability for, in these certain areas. And it's basically a settlement through Congress that didn't work and eventually uh, you know, the industry made the master settlement agreement um, the end of the 90s with the with the states in the in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, that's how that particular litigation resolves. So, you know, we could see trials in this climate litigation. We could also see a, you know, we could also see the biggest settlement in legal history potentially um, because the damages are so enormous. So, you know, there are different ways that this can can resolve. And of course, you know, a major impact of litigation is public communication. Um, you know, this is dramatic. Um, it it's gonna it's gonna highlight issues of damage um and, and really make them concrete. You know, but it's gonna put dollar figures on just how much damage is being done by global warming. And how much of that, you know, the defendants should be fairly, you know, justifiably responsible for. And, you know, that kind of, that shifts our, our, all of our understanding of this, this problem, you know, makes it more specific. So, you know, I think that's going to be a, hu a major impact of this too. And then, of course, there's the global, the global equity and justice issues where regions of the world, that have contributed the least to this problem in many cases are getting hit the the hardest. And so there's an international component to this too, which, you know, I don't know how that's going to play out. It's going to be extremely important though, uh, I think. So, and that's going to be, you know, also a geopolitical sure. issue. Sure. But I mean, we're seeing already from the COP conferences a sort of inability to uh, cooperate internationally and to take responsibility uh, for the damage done by Western and colonial nations. And one of my sources who I was speaking to during COP27 was saying that the United States is extremely reticent to start a loss and damages fund and call it a loss and damages fund, um, to call it... Um, or, or to name the impact that they have had on the world, because then it will open up the government to litigation, which they will sort of lose. It sort of um, admits culpability just in the process of involvement um, in that kind of international cooperation, uh, which would lead me to think that these uh, lawsuits or like any sort of change using institution institutional power is actually going to be driven by citizens, concerned citizens and activists and lawyers who are willing to help take on these giants. Is that what we're seeing thus far? I think that's right. You know, I mean, I think that's, I think that's an accurate read on the situation. And in a lot of ways, all, almost all, all the progress or a lot of the progress, at least that we've made on climate um, inadequate as it is, but what we have 
done. A lot of it is to the credit of, of, you know, organizing of grassroots organizing and activism that has become the translated often into different professional spheres. You know, there's obviously the growth of climate litigation, of course, without the initial, um, grassroots activists focus on the fossil fuel industry as a culprit, you know, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't see the litigation going after the fossil fuel industry, for example. And, you know, now we're seeing public relations professionals as well as lawyers and, you know, and others kind of waking up to this huge problem that we face and asking themselves, how can I do things differently? How can I play a positive role and contribute to the solution to this problem rather than just sort of living on autopilot and, um, you know, contributing to the status quo? So, you know, that's I think a lot of that is due to the the citizen activists and, and things like that. That's it's incredibly important. And all of these are are coupled together they're all connected and related to each other in terms of, you know, people fighting for our, our common home. But, you know, it's you bring up the 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 hard issues of, you know, will countries that contributed to this, you know, like the United States very much, you know, will they will they be held accountable too? Um for the damage that that they've caused for people all around the world and you know i don't know i mean it's i i hope that justice is is you know carried out you know but um it's of course hard but it doesn't mean that the struggle shouldn't be you know pursued where is the most important place to focus attention and effort in your research is it is it governments is it fossil fuel companies is it um individuals former board members well i think you know a huge i think right now they're all important but i think the fossil fuel industry historically we know they've it's played a major role in blocking climate action you know and it's it's something that's so well documented by now i mean just you know reams of you know articles and investigations um you know have shown that in great detail just how these different industries banded together um to block fossil fuel controls you know and it's and often it's the fossil fuel producers themselves um it's industries that that are related to the fossil fuel industry like the petrochemical industry like the automobile manufacturers, um, you know, like the agricultural industry as well. Um, it's, there's a, and, and power utilities, of course, too, are incredibly important in this. So there are kind of different layers of this onion where certain companies have an irreconcilable conflict with controlling fossil fuels. And then you have other companies that just would prefer it not to happen because it complicates their business. And then you have other companies who, you know, they don't really have a a business conflict with it, but they're just sort of uh, apathetic. They just sort of aren't, they're not doing what they should do to push forward, uh, you know, a sustainable, you know, a more sustainable economy at least. So, you know, you have kind of layers of culpability. And so, you know, I, I think focusing on, you know, the, the core of it makes sense. I mean, it's really important to address the fossil fuel producers because climate change is mostly a fossil fuel problem. Um, and so that makes sense. But, you know, there are layers. And so we might see liability um, expand beyond just fossil fuel producers. We might we might see other other groups uh, see that as well, especially if they played a part in deceiving the public about about the problem interesting i'm not sure if i agree about climate change being a sort of dominantly fossil fuel problem it is not just the use of fossil fuels that's a problem it's like the unbridled use of fossil fuels in a market economy that maximizes profit and growth 
expansion and consumption. So these are sort of the sociopolitical drivers yeah. that we need to address, as well as the source of fuel that we are using to run the economy. What kind of litigation or legal strategies could we use or discuss during these litigation cases that would also highlight the focus of the economy's role and our need to transition and our need to change rather than just sort of villainizing the fuel source, which in totally. itself isn't the problem. Well, I see there's, I see it as two problems. And of course, you know, people see this differently because it's a complex system. And so to solve this problem, we're creating models of what the problem is and, you know, how to go about it. So people have different understanding, understandings of where, you know, where the, the core of the problem is but i think that this this highlights essentially two related problems there's the specific problem of taking fossil carbon and injecting it into the atmosphere and and coupled biosphere and oceans you know that's one problem um and that has to be addressed you know as quickly as possible um but there is another problem which you, i you know you're you're alluding to or, or talking about, I think, which is that this highlights the the problems and the dangers of our current mode of how global capitalism is organized. Um, we basically see that a relatively small number of very powerful corporations succeeded in creating and a, a huge, huge irreversible problem for the entire planet in a relatively short period of time. Um, and it was because they were driven by the profit motive and be, basically being good, good corporations for their shareholders, basically. Um, and so that highlights a huge and broader problem, I think. And so we also can't lose sight of that. And you know, I think climate might be a it, kind of a cautionary tale or one example of a bigger problem where we, we, you know, we should think about what sort of reforms are needed in the broader economic system yeah. so that we don't, you know, create even more and potentially worse, who knows, problems down the road. I mean, you know, linked to yeah. climate, but also extending beyond it is the biodiversity crisis as well and you know again you know irreversible harms um and we don't really understand what we're doing um to the our, the planet that we live on so you know that's another problem too so you know i i think you know sometimes people argue about is it is it capitalism that's the problem is it fossil fuels just kind of in an isolated sense that's the problem i think Perhaps it's both, you know, I mean, they're, they're connected with each other, um, yeah. you know, you know, very much, of course, um, you know, so there, there hopefully will be a rapid transition. And I sort of see a couple of parts to that. One is dismantling the obstruction that we, that we have seen for decades. So, you know, by now we know that there has been very organized obstruction blocking public policy to control fossil fuels and replace fossil fuels ever since the 1980s. Um, and it's been very successful and it's been, it's global in scope and it's very coordinated. And so now we have a better and better understanding of that. And that needs to be, that needs to be confronted and that needs to be uh, dismantled essentially so that we can actually make progress. Um, so, you know, that's, that's part of it. Um, and then we need to ensure that the broader economic system is, is doing what it should do to solve this problem. And by that, I mean, you know, we see that the, 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 the economic system is, of course, bigger than fossil fuels, but we don't see adequate action from, you know, the financial sector, from, you know, lots of other different sectors around the world. And they need to be taking greater action too. So, you know, there's the accountability part of this focused on the fossil fuel industry primarily, but then there's also, 
um, sort of um, an obligations, a future obligations aspect to this too, which is broader that can focus on, you know, many other sectors. And I hope those sectors do the right thing because, you know, having a lot of harmful, you know, disastrous climate change is not good for them, I presume. Um, so I presume they have an interest in preventing that. And so that's an important piece of this, of this as well. Tell me, in your research, what do you think the fossil fuel defense is going to be legally? What well, are they, they have trying to say? Yeah, it's a great question. They have a bunch of defenses and we've, we've seen some of them already. Um, one of them is okay. that everybody already, everybody has always known about this problem. And so this is a standard defense. It's a common knowledge defense. Tobacco industry okay. um, use this. Other other industries have used this. Um, you know what? What's wrong with that is that is that while it's true that some people have known about this, not everyone has known about this. Um, knowledge is uneven throughout society, and of course, we know that these these fossil fuel companies. Um, actively ensured that many people would not accurately understand the problem and actively work to destroy knowledge, manipulate it, and undermine it um, in key audiences. So, you know, that that defense, you know, is, I think, weak, but it's something that, that we're seeing them use. You know, another defense is, well, what about all the benefits of fossil fuel? And of course, it's, I mean, it's, and it's, edu it's kind of illustrative or illuminating to, to kind of get into that because the problem is not the, at least in these cases, the industrial revolution. It's when these companies knew there was going to be a problem instead of doing the right thing and, and warning people about it, both the public and the government. And, taking reasonable steps to minimize the harm by moving away from fossil fuels as an energy source, they doubled down on that harmful product, concealed their knowledge, deceived the public, and over-promoted what they knew was going to be a dangerous product that would cause a huge amount of damage to everyone else. So that's the problem. So it's, you know, these, these cases don't really consider or need to go back to the industrial revolution they're basically considering actions since you know 1980 or so maybe early maybe a little earlier but you know that's the relevant most relevant time frame for these cases um and and of course when we think about the benefits and the costs of fossil fuels the benefits are not What's the benefit of fossil fuel compared to no energy source whatsoever? It's what's yeah. the benefit of fossil fuels compared to reasonable alternatives. And those alternatives exist and have existed for a while. And arguably, they could have been implemented sooner, developed faster. Um, there isn't really a technological reason why they, that couldn't have happened. Um, and we could have gone down those learning curves and cost curves sooner than we actually did and avoided emissions and global mm -hmm. warming. So, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's something that maybe economists or, or others will, will analyze in depth, but, you know, that's the real cost benefit analysis to do here is, okay, how much better off would we be if, you know, these companies had, had, had moved as well as they could have reasonably moved into non-fossil energy sources when they knew there was going to be a problem with fossil fuels. Um, and of course, we know that the costs of climate change itself are enormous. And so there is a huge cost side, you know, the cost side of that, that ledger is huge. Um, so, you know, I think that cost benefit question is going to be really interesting. It'll probably be somewhat of a technical question. But my suspicion is that, you know, the, the cost of developing solar and wind and things like that earlier probably 
is not greater than, you know, two or three degrees Celsius of, of global warming. Absolutely. And what a humdinger of a point <laughs> to end on. Ben, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. <laughs> My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Well, there are a couple of, of scholars whose work I think is incredible. Um, they're, they're professors. One is, um, her name is Jennifer Jackwit. Uh, she's a professor at NYU, and she studies agnotology, which is the study of ignorance. It's a study of how ignorance is created, uh, disseminated, how knowledge is destroyed. Um, and she recently wrote a great book, um, I think it's called The Playbook, and it it highlights a lot of these common corporate strategies for, you know, deceiving the public about their products and deflecting blame and responsibility. Um, and another that's related is, uh, his name is Jeffrey Supron, and he's a professor at uh, University of Miami. And and he and his co-authors just came out with a with a class it's going to be a classic. It's a blockbuster article. It's a, as much as I can say a scientific article is a blockbuster. This one is because okay. what, what, what they did was they took all of Exxon's internal projections of global warming and combined, you know, did a statistical analysis of all of them and compared them to what actually happened. And they show, and you can see it in the, in the pictures. It's so clear. They show that Exxon, Exxon's predictions of global warming were incredibly accurate. Um, and, you know, it's just powerful. It's powerful to see that. And then, of course, the company went on to, you know, tell the public the opposite thing, to say climate models aren't reliable, don't believe it, you know, we don't know if climate change is happening, and so on. So it's just a really powerful piece of work. It was published in Science a magazine yesterday um and it's making the rounds and it's it's, it's powerful wonderful ben thank you so much for your time this is fascinating thank you very much i really appreciate it i've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview if you liked this episode leave a review and share it far and wide if you loved it support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com as always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.